Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today, we're talking about the most underrated natural resource that's all over the planet. We step on it without a second thought. Today, we're talking about soil. In New England, where I live, the nights are getting chillier and the days are getting shorter. And I'm starting to think about bidding farewell to my garden until next spring. I may not have a large-scale agricultural production system in my backyard, but I do start with the same resource that all food growers need, soil. While home gardeners like me worry about pollinators and blight and rainfall and the bunnies that come to steal my lettuce, I don't often think about what's underneath my feet. And I'm not the only one, but that's all about to change. From backyard gardeners to big agriculture, almost no one is paying enough attention to the health of soils, says agricultural scientist Andrea Bache. Dr. Bache was a Kendall Science Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists and just started as a AAAS Fellow at the USDA National Institute for Food and Agriculture. I sat down with Andrea to talk about why healthy soils mean better outcomes for farmers with large operations as well as gardeners like me, and what we can all do to create healthier and happier soils. Andrea, welcome to Got Science. Thanks for having me. You recently released a report about soil called Turning Soils into Sponges, How Farmers Can Fight Floods and Droughts. You also made a short video illustrating the amazing power of soil. I'm thinking soil as a superhero. Since I watched the video, I've been out in my garden watering and watching how long it takes for the pools of water to get fully absorbed. (laughs) So I'm a bit of a soil geek. Um, So we all know that soil needs to have nutrients for plants to grow. And I think most people think just put some fertilizer in it and you're good to go. But there's a lot more to it. So how can soil play a role in fighting floods and droughts? You know, I would start by saying that, unfortunately, I think a lot of people see soil as just a growth medium to produce plants or crops rather than really the living dynamic system that it is. And so we get so many services, so many benefits from soil that are not just about growing crops, not just for our own provision of food. And so, you know, soil is really the start of the food web for all of the other organisms that live in the ecosystems. And so that's one ecosystem service or one benefit we get from the soil. And another one can be flood and drought mitigation, as we talked about in the report. And so what that starts from is really what I like to think about in terms of the biology, the chemistry, and the physics that are happening in the soil. So all those things we learned about in growing up in in middle school and high school, those all come into play actually in the soil. And so the main thing that we talk about in the report in terms of flood and drought mitigation has to do with the physical improvements of the soil. So I like to, if you envision, since you're such a soil soil enthusiast, (laughs) if you think about the soil like a matrix, right? And so if you think about almost like a pile of bricks, different soils, different types of soil are going to have different orientations of bricks or different sizes of bricks. But really what's critical to the flood and drought mitigation aspect of the soil is how the structure of those bricks kind of hang together. So a healthy soil should be composed of one part solid materials, one part air, and some parts water. And actually the air parts of it, which again might seem counterintuitive, but if you think about it as the bricks, then that's you know really critical to the way that water moves through the soil. 
you know, too much air or too much compacted soil is not going to be good for that water entering it. And so as we show in the video, which I encourage everyone to look at, we're showing a healthier, more porous soil that has water infiltrating, moving through it so that that water can stay there versus running off downstream and causing other problems as in a flood event, but also remaining in the soil so that there's more water there for times when there's less rain. So so really the the benefit of the soil service comes from its structure and what we found from the research was that the best way to build that structure was through having roots in the soil that feed the biology that contribute to structural improvements and chemical improvements in the soil that make it better able to mitigate those flood and drought impacts. Okay, so I so I understand for floods, it's more absorbent, it's going to help in that way, but what does it do for droughts? So the idea that we demonstrated with the research is that if you have a more porous soil, you are holding on to more of that water in those heavy rain events so that it can be there when there's less rain. And so what we found in the modeling work that we did was that the ability of the soil to hold more water made more water available in drier periods in the historic period that we looked at in the analysis. I heard you say recently that soil is a limited resource. And I found that intriguing because I think most people think you can just dig anywhere. There's soil everywhere. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. So I like to do this demonstration sometimes where you might just envision the earth as an apple, right? To think about how much soil is actually available on earth, right? So if you were to cut that apple up into four pieces, 75% of the earth's surface is water. If you think about that other quarter, that's representative of the land surface. And some estimates say that only one quarter of that remaining quarter is actually suitable for growing food at all because the rest of it is covered by ice or mountains or desert. Um, And then when you think about development in terms of cities, buildings, etc., that's even less area that's available for soil. And if you think about, you know, the soil being the skin of the apple, right, it's really only a small percentage. And I've seen other estimates that say it's maybe a little bit higher than that, that maybe half of the land area of the earth's surface is used for agriculture, maybe a third for crops and two thirds for for grazing animals. And so, so there's really not maybe as much as you might think. And then on the other side of that being a limited resource, some estimates say now that erosion rates, so the degradation or movement of soil to places where we don't want it away from, from where we would want it to grow our food is occurring Um, Some estimates say 10 to 40 times greater than what are the natural replacement rates so soil can be rebuilt naturally, but that the rates of loss are happening much more quickly than than it's actually being rebuilt. So so that erosion, on top of the fact that it is not everywhere that we can actually use soil for growing food, is part of why we talk about it as a, a limited resource. So soil needs care. Care and feeding. Yes. So tell me, there were um, a few things in the report that farmers can do, and I know we can drill down and apply this to the backyard gardener. You recommend planting perennial crops and cover crops as one way to improve the soil. So tell us how that works on a large-scale farm, and can it be uh, sort of scaled down for the backyard gardener? Absolutely, it can. I'll start with the first part of your question in terms of the the larger scale. So the things that we talk about in terms of 
perennial crops, cover crops. What I really like to say is to think about as continuous living cover. So what are the different ways that farmers can have continuous roots in their soil? Perennial crops could be a variety of things, right? So a perennial crop is something that you plant and keeps roots in the soil for several years, right? So you don't have to replant it like you would an annual crop. And so perennial crops could be things like forage grasses for livestock. It could be bioenergy crops, so some of these big grasses like miscanthus or switchgrass. It could also be things like a perennial grain. So we don't currently have an infinitesimal amount of them on the market. So that's something, um, a perennial grain crop that's being developed by people at the Land Institute in Kansas. So maybe in the future, we could have more of those perennial grain crops. But so perennial crops could mean a variety of different things on a farm. It could also mean in the spirit of continuous living cover, it could mean things like cover crops. So growing a crop when the soil would otherwise be bare. So, you know, we talk in the report about corn and soybean crop systems. And so that would look like you know, you plant your corn in April or May, you harvest it in September, October, and as soon as you harvest, you would plant something like a cereal rye crop that can grow a little bit in the fall, go dormant, and then grow again in the spring before you would plant your next corn or soybean crop. So right now, farmers plant their corn, they dig up their corn, and they don't do anything? That's right. The majority of cropland, especially in the Midwest agriculture, which I'm familiar with, does not have a cover crop. So Iowa, for example, it's the the area that we study. Just as an example, 68% of the land area is cropland in the state. 90 plus percent of it is corn or soybean. So those are annual crops. So you plant them in the spring, you harvest them in the fall. But it's estimated that only about 2% of Iowa is using a cover crop. There's some states in the Midwest that are a little higher, but I think that the number is maybe 3% across the whole U.S. that are using cover crops. So it's rare. And it just sits there until the next year. Bare, vulnerable, ready for... Not good. Not good. Right. And and not only bare and vulnerable, you know, in, in the Midwest, at least they get a lot of their um, precipitation in the spring. And that's often when there's no plants that are protecting the soil or growing and using water to reduce some of those flood impacts. So it's just washing away. But has the potential to it's just washing. wash away. That's right. Wow. So it's, and it's missing the opportunity, really, to use the sunlight use the energy of the sun to turn plants into carbon that can benefit the soil. So it's it's not just that it's vulnerable, but you're also missing the opportunity to which do would, have plants do what they do, which is awesome. They photosynthesize and that And know. that would potentially lead to less fertilizer, right? If your soil is healthy and good and rich, do you still have to fertilize it? That's a great question. So in time, so these changes don't happen overnight. And, and you know, to get back to, to your question of how does this benefit gardeners, too, how can gardeners apply some of these soil management principles? You know, a healthier soil that has more organic matter is going to be, in theory, requiring less inputs in terms of fertilizers. But unfortunately, you know, farmers are business people. They're there to make money and they need a good crop to do that. And that requires fertilizer. So, so it's really, and you know, you hear about some of these very innovative farmers who are using cover crops and integrating livestock into their fields. And you hear about how they talk about, you know, after 5, 10, 15 years that they're using less inputs. So it doesn't happen overnight, but in time, you know, the use of some of these principles can benefit the garden and farmers too. Excellent reason to start now. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. So tell me a little bit about, you also mentioned in the report that we want to minimize 
plowing the fields. And that is another one that feels a little counterintuitive because I always think in the spring when I have to dig up that soil and it's so hard and you have to dig it up to be able to plant in it. So tell me about plowing. Right. It might seem a little counterintuitive, right? And historically, plowing has been a great way to prepare a seedbed for planting or to kill weeds for weed management. But over time, that plowing does a couple of things that are bad for the soil, right? So I talked about the soil structure and the brick orientation. So that disruption of the soil when you're plowing can also break up the good soil structure, can degrade your soil structure. So that's one thing that it does. But it also releases carbon that's in the soil and puts it into the atmosphere. So it it has a couple of negative consequences for soil structure and, and the chemistry and the biology in the soil. And so you know, for your garden, you know, there can be some instances where some minimum tillage or, you know, is, is needed to to get things ready to go. Um, doing things over time, like using cover crops, using compost, using mulches. You can see, I mean, gardeners talk about this all the time, and there seems to be like a sense of pride in terms of improving their soil, but it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. So our farmer has planted his corn. It's the fall now. He's decided to put a cover crop in. He puts the cover crop in. And then in the spring, does he not plow at all? Does he dig that in? Does he just do a little plowing? So there's a couple different methods that could be used to to terminate the cover crop. The most common one that you might see in corn or soybean crop rotation in the Midwest is to use some kind of chemical or some kind of herbicide to, to terminate the cover crop. And some researchers are innovating and trying a, a roller crimper method, so to just plow down the cover crop so that you almost have a, a mulch effect of it. But you also have to make sure you have enough growth of that cover crop for that method to work. So it's, it depends on your system, and, and so there's mechanical methods or chemical methods to terminate your cover crop. So for the, for the home gardener, if I've planted a little area with a cover crop in the spring, if you don't have farming equipment or whatever, what would you do there? Would you just leave it and try to plant around you could it? Plan, or, you could or... plant into it or around it. You might also do some kind of minimum hand plowing method to... So the idea is just not to go in there and break the entire structure that our poor little soil has been right. trying so hard right. to build. Right. If you can do that as minimally as possible, that would be ideal. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science Podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes, email us at podcast at ucsusa.org, and please share us with your friends and colleagues. You can find Andrea's report with her video demonstration at ucsusa.org soil. Okay, back to our interview. So is it feasible for farmers to really be able to do this? What are some of the hurdles to managing crops this way? So change is hard for all of us. And again, you know, if you think about farmers as entrepreneurs who are trying to keep their businesses going, they've been doing the things that policy and economics have told them to do, which is really to, you know, maximize your short-term yield for profit 
And that's not necessarily what's benefiting our environment and maybe their soil and their profits really in the long term. So I guess I'll start by saying change is hard and it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. But yeah, some of the hurdles, right, if you're going to grow new crops, you need to have experience with those crops. You need to uh, have the right equipment to plant and to harvest them. So, you know, we talk a lot about in the work that we do, we talk about in the report, the need for more research on some of these things to make sure that there is region specific crops that there's experience around in terms of just what are the the nuts and bolts of how you do this. So the research is definitely an important part and an important barrier. I would also say in terms of barriers, right, having markets for some of these diverse crops. So, you know, I talked about some of the options with perennials and we don't have markets. We don't even have really the the wherewithal for, you know, a perennial grain crop or, you know, some of the perennial bioenergy crops that have a lot of potential. You know, there's just not markets for in the same way that there are for crops like corn or soybeans. So, you know, there's also good social science research that shows that some of the cost share programs or some of the farm bill programs and state level programs that already exist for farmers to start learning how to do some of these things. You know, you can get an incentive from various federal programs to offset the cost of a cover crop, for example, and you can get that for a couple of years. And those are great. And the research actually shows that those are important for getting farmers comfortable and getting started with some of these new practices. And so what we talk about in the report is the need for more of those programs that support practices that we want to see that offer continuous living cover and soil protection. So when you were talking about perennial crops, how would a farmer use that? Say you've got 10 acres, so you should set aside a certain percentage, or is there a specific way you would sort of build that in? So that's one way that perennial crops could be incorporated into or mixed with annual crops. And this is an idea that we've talked about a lot in our blogs and our writing and that research that's ongoing in several places, including Iowa State University, where I went to grad school, but this idea of integrating the less productive areas of your field that you've learned through either yield monitors or just observation, setting that area aside, whether that's 10% or 5% or 20%, and you know, depends on your area or places that are more topographic, that are not as well suited for, you know, high crop productivity. So what that looks like is really setting that area aside and growing a crop that is going to protect your soil protect water from moving, protect from water pollution, because it's less profitable or just less productive. So so it could look like that, or it could also look like an entire field of a perennial crop, of course, that you have a a market for. So it could look like a lot of different things. So is there anything that the average person can do to um, help with the transition to healthier farm practices? I'm ready. I know you're ready, and I love that you're ready. You know, I I often refer to soil as sort of the underdog of natural resources that we hear a lot about water pollution, we hear a lot about air quality, and really the imperative of soil protection is not top of mind for a lot of people. So, So one thing I would say is just becoming an advocate and looking around and being interested in soil. You know, there's some pop culture books about soil, some movies, you know, some of the education being the the first part of it. I'd also say, you know, we're seeing a lot more interest from farmers and from the business community around sustainability initiatives and learning more about what those entail and certification programs and, and understanding 
Um, the idea of voting with your fork, right, is one component of it too. But I have a concern that some of these programs are not necessarily going to have as much teeth as they need to. So making sure that what you're what you're buying is is actually you know perennially certified or whatever the you know future certification might be. So right. voting with your fork, but also really you know on the side of if you're learning more about these things, but you know talking to elected officials and taking action and following work like the work that UCS does and how do you get involved in some of these farm bill activities. So the farm bill is federally mandated legislation that happens every four to five years around many of the things that we're talking about and that we talk about in the report. So familiarizing yourself with it and then becoming involved to to grow the base of people who are more concerned about these issues because we need you. We need to grow the group of people who are thinking about this because again, it's not from my experience, as top of mind as water or or air issues. I want a quick piece of personal advice. It's fall. I'm putting my garden to bed. For the home gardener, what would you recommend in the Northeast for a cover crop? Well, growing a cover crop, right, you're getting started on the right foot. I mean, it sort of depends what your goals are. So legume cover crops. My goal is to cover that soil. Great. (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. You know, so I was going to say that legume cover crops like clover or vetch are great for soil fertility because they're taking nitrogen from the atmosphere and putting it into forms that are available for plants. This is an amazing trick that legume plants do. So if you're looking for soil fertility, that can be one option. If you're looking for reducing compaction of the soils, plants with deep roots or with tap roots like radish can be a great example. Buckwheat is a nice, actually, it's kind of good for late summer. It's something that can attract pollinators with its flowers. Rye, some of the grass plants, is kind of the workhorse. It grows in lots of different conditions and can produce a lot of biomass. I would encourage people as they plan for their garden, you know, if you're pulling out a, a section of your garden in, in August or something, then think about what can you get planted at that time. So October's great. But if you can start thinking about planting even sooner because you have more light and more heat units earlier in the year, and so that's a better chance for the plants to grow. So there's tools online to help folks think about that. Um, yes, but it really starts with your what your goals are in a, in a cover crop species. Let me go back for a minute to the short video you made, and I will give the address for that at the end of the episode. It's a great video. It gives you the absolute visual of what's going on. It shows us the sham-wow qualities of good soil. (laughs) But there's a guest appearance by Godzilla in that video. And can you tell me how is it working with Godzilla? (laughs) Because I've heard he's a real prima donna. Well, he didn't appreciate the flood scene. I'll tell you that. But at the end of the day, we all got along. Well, that's good to hear because he can be a little testy. (laughs) Well, thanks, Andrea, for joining us. It's been great talking to you. I can't wait to get back into my garden. I'm so excited to get to chat with such a soil enthusiast, Colleen, and let's go spread the good word of soil. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Andrea Beige. You can find Andrea's report with her video demonstration at ucsusa.org soil. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you like what you hear and you want more episodes of Got Science, 
go to gotsciencepodcast.org. Or even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.